Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Beloved, please remain standing or start standing for the reading of the Word of God. Today's message will be from John 21, 1 through 17, and we'll go back to it piece by piece through the message, but we will start by hearing the first four verses. This is the Word of God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Beloved, pray with me. Father, we come to you asking you to teach us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Make us ready listeners to hear this word that you have secured from the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, that represent some of the final instructions Jesus gave to his disciples. And therefore, by their place, we recognize their importance for all of God's people. So, Father, give us a careful hearing, ready to receive and apply. And, Father, help me but to preach this word, to preach it clearly, to communicate what your word says, not what I think. And Father, bless the hearing and the preaching with the promise that you give us that your word will not return void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we uh, continue in our Follow Me series, which has been a, a study of the way of discipleship by journeying with the first disciple. Peter, through the, the ministry of Jesus, learning what it means to follow those commands that Jesus gives, follow me. We have seen that, G, that uh, Peter has performed as, as sort of the model disciple, learning the lessons for all of us. And he learns those lessons often in his mistakes, uh, sometimes in his successes, but we take these stories as opportunities for us to also learn what it means to be a disciple, which is just a synonym for being a believer or a Christian. John chapter 21 brings us to those select events of Jesus with the disciples after the resurrection. John 21 is the last chapter of the gospel of John. 
And as we read through this chapter and look at it, we are going to see that this chapter brings many of the experiences of Peter's discipleship training together. We are going to hear echoes of discipleship lessons from the past being brought back to the forefront and given their final teaching. John 21 is a, is a chapter that very much is about Peter and Jesus. And we see in this chapter that it is a, a call to Peter to remember, to heal, to go forward. So this chapter really is boiling down to the essentials of how and why a disciple goes out into the world. This chapter is monumentally important for Peter himself because in this chapter we see Jesus' gracious answer to Peter's terrible fall that we have looked at over the last two weeks where we saw uh, three lessons that we learn to preserve, persevere our faith from Peter's denials, but also three lessons of God's grace that restores a sinner when they fall. Nonetheless, Peter hasn't gotten to receive those two messages. He's only lived through the pain of them. And so John 21 is Jesus' personal coming to Peter, Jesus' personal coming to Peter to restore him. And so it is a precious section of Scripture. I think it is uh, amazing or, or beautiful the story fittingly happens by the Sea of Galilee, which in this passage is called the Sea of Tiberias, but that's the same thing. The sea has been a character in its own right in Peter's discipleship. It has been the, the training ground for much of Peter's lessons. He was called at the side of this sea. He has gone through two storms on this sea with Jesus. He has walked on the water of this sea. It is by this sea that the feeding of the 5,000 happened. This sea lives in the background as a witness to all of those experiences. And in a sense, all of those experiences for Peter are refreshed and brought back to mind every time he sees the sea. I think of it like this. Um, for uh, almost 10 straight years, my family and I would go in the summer to a little resort town in Colorado, Winter Park. We started as a, as a very young family with just one little kid. And there is this particular picture spot that we just fell upon. And we took our picture as a family with one kid at that spot that first year. And then... We made that an annual trip, and every year we went back to that spot. And over about 10 years, we have a collection of pictures that are attached to that spot, which has become precious and full of memories and experiences. That as we go through those pictures, we can see the growth of our family. We can remember some of the major moments. One of those pictures was taken right after Dad stupidly raced down the alpine slide and, and wrecked it 
with one of his kids between his legs. And so there's a picture with road rash on our faces. So this, this series of pictures shows our growth. It shows some of our failures, but it also shows us uh, as a family. And there is much that we, we learn as we look at those pictures as, as a family. There's formation and growth, mistakes and progress. That's what the Sea of Galilee is. It's this stage where so much discipleship has occurred. So how does this passage prepare Peter to go forward with the mission? Well, today I I want to do the sermon a little differently than I have in the past. Rather than setting three points on the top, I want us just to work through the passage and let the, the, the passage bring up various lessons at different times, which we'll consider as they come up. Peter begins his discipleship at the side of the sea, and here he has his discipleship made ready to go forward. This is a major transition point. It is his time now to be the rock of the early church. Jesus is about to ascend, and so this chapter gives these final lessons so that we can all see what it means to go forward into this world as disciples. Essential to Peter's going forward is the assurance of his restoration after his denial of Jesus on the night of Jesus' arrest. We recognize that Peter can go nowhere after those denials. He's disqualified. He can't stand as a a leader of the church, having become so uh, sifted, so flawed, so exposed. And so it is necessary for Peter to experience restoration by Jesus himself. Otherwise, Peter can do nothing. And so it is beautiful that in John 21, Jesus provides a powerful, verbal, personal restoration of Peter. This is the primary concern of verses 15 through 17, which I know is out of place, but I believe we have to start here uh, before we understand the other parts of this chapter, or at least I think it's a good place for us to begin especially since we have been living in the fall of Peter for so long. Look at John 21, 15 to 17. We are told these words. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, 
Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This scene is about restoration. If you look up at at verse 9, you'll see that this scene happens at a particular uh, breakfast location. And it's described for us with an interesting detail. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. What is interesting about that, that verse and this setting where Jesus is picked to have this conversation about love is that seemingly insignificant detail about the fire. John uses a very special word, calling it a charcoal fire. Charcoal fire is not the only word that can be used to describe a cooking fire. And in fact, there are only two places in all of Scripture where the exact word that is being used here for that kind of fire exists in the Scriptures. And the other one of those is John 18, 18, where we are told that Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire outside of the courtyard the night that Jesus was arrested. You see, there was a charcoal fire in front of Peter when his faith failed and he denied Jesus. And here, in John 21, after the resurrection, Jesus has invited Peter to a personal conversation in front of a charcoal fire. I know that every detail about that night was seared in Peter's memory. And so as insignificant of a detail as that charcoal fire may appear to us in reading, I doubt it was missed by Peter. Here by the sea, Peter is again by a charcoal fire. At the last charcoal fire, he was denying Jesus three times. But Jesus in his love brings Peter back to this fire. And it is here where Peter confesses his love for Jesus three times. The threefold confession is all about taking the fall and restoring Peter. Now, many commentators and preachers make something of the fact that in in this exchange, Jesus and Peter are using different words for love. In the Greek language, love has, uh, there are many Greek words that we could translate as love. I guess English people are kind of flat-minded when it comes to love. We we don't have much vocabulary for it. We wear out that simple four-letter word. But the Greeks had several words to describe love. And one word uh, many Christians are familiar with is agape, which we are taught means this unconditional, selfless love. And another love uh, word in Greek is phileo, which is uh, often understood as brotherly love, the 
city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, has phila, phileo in it as part of that remnant. There have been many sermons preached on this particular passage making a great emphasis on the fact that Jesus says to to Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responding, yes, I phileo you, which is to say there are these two different words of love. And often with the, the import of the view that agape is the definition in the scriptures for the highest, most selfless form of love, it is, it is reasoned that Peter is coming to Jesus with less love than Jesus wants Peter to have. But I honestly think that this is making something out of the text that isn't really there. It is, it is reading into the text uh, a development in our thinking about the Greek words of love that are not necessarily operative and controlling to the Apostle John. I'll give you an example of why I don't think that that's John's situation. If you look at John chapter 5, verse 20, you'll read this verse. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. This is the love between the Father and the Son, the the perfect Trinitarian love, the, the highest love that can possibly be experienced or expressed. And the word that John uses for love in John 5.20 is phileo. So the reasoning here is, is simple. I don't think we can press these words that far. I think what we probably have here is just a stylistic variation. And I think a clinching argument for this is if Peter was denying that his love was agape love, then he would respond not with, yes, you know I love you, but with no. He would more simply say, no, but I phileo love you. But that is not what he says. And so the straight reading of this text is just love. And Peter is pledging a strong love, the strongest word of love that he can muster. A powerful word for love. So we have three Words, I love you, I love you, I love you. And this conversation, it's initiated by Jesus. That's such a beautiful point right there. This conversation between Peter and Jesus shows us that it is Christ's heart to restore us. Jesus comes to Peter. This public reconciliation is for Peter's sake. Jesus never stopped loving Peter. Jesus' love never wavered. Beloved, this passage teaches us something that I want all of you to know. God is always ready to reconcile. God is always ready to forgive. That is the reason that Jesus gives us stories like the 
prodigal son. We are told that the, the younger brother runs off, takes the, the inheritance uh, of, of his father and squanders it, uses it for sinful pleasures and exhausts it until he is penniless and living in a pig slop. And when he comes to his senses and says, I would be better being a servant in my father's house and determines to come back, the, the parable is so beautifully told the father runs out to the son at the moment that he can see the son coming. And the son can hardly get out the words, I have sinned, before the father's arms are wrapped around his neck and his ring is put on his finger and his robe covers him. And the joy of his restoration is celebrated ahead of and before even the son can express his sorrow. That is the heart of Jesus for his disciples. He is ready to restore. He is ready to shower his love. Do not sit back and say, I, I can't come to Jesus. He would be too angry at me. That is not true. Jesus on the cross said to his crucifiers, or prayed, I should say, on behalf of his crucifiers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I assure you, come to Jesus with confession, repentance, and a desire to be forgiven, and his love will fall upon you. As John's first letter, 1-9, tells us so well, and we say it so often, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we see this passage, we recognize our love for Jesus must be the highest priority for the disciple. It is required that we are deeply in love of Jesus for us to do any ministry at all. Ministry flows out of our love. And so, let this passage be a, 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 a stirring, an encouragement, a provoking of you to be vigilant, recognizing that our love for Jesus, if we do not continually stoke it, is always in danger of, of growing cold, of becoming distant. It is possible for our love for Jesus to wane. Listen to these words said to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Jesus says these words, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown wary. That is a wonderful testimony of faithfulness and obedience and courage and patience and steadfastness. 
And yet, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The highest priority for the disciple is that his love for Jesus burns above everything, that it is kept hot, that it is not allowed to cool. Beloved, how is your love for Jesus? Have you kept your first love? Does your heart say, you know that I love you? We must make sure that our love for Jesus is highest and strongest and never grow slack because without it, we can do nothing. Without it, we fade away. Peter's threefold renewal is a reminder to us, always be renewing your love for Jesus. Don't take it for granted. Now, not only is Jesus restoring Peter, but he is also in this last chapter confirming to Peter what his purpose is and and how he is going to accomplish it. This is the significance of the rest of the chapter. The focus is the mission that Jesus still has for Peter. So let's back up and let's look now at chapter 21, verses 3 through 8. 3 through 8 says this. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his, on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Peter's going fishing at the Sea of Tiberias. Why? Some people think that Peter's fishing is, a, is an evidence that his faith has truly been lost. His, 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 his sense of dereliction of, of, of hopelessness has overcome him, that he's going back to the profession that Jesus told him to drop his nets. I don't think that's the case. I think it's a, a much simpler situation. Peter is waiting He is waiting for his Lord to tell him what the next thing is. There's already been a a resurrection appearance with Peter, so Peter knows uh, uh, that there is still something. I don't think we need to read him going back to fishing as anything more than it's something for him to do while he waits. Fishing is something he knows. Fishing is a good use of his time. And so he he goes back to fishing. 
But the story is interesting. They fish all night, as they have in the past, but they are completely unsuccessful. John says that they caught nothing. Suddenly, at dawn, a voice from the shore speaks to them. In verse 6, do you have any fish? And then says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Does this scene remind you of anything? Peter's original call happened just like this. We saw in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5 that Jesus came to Peter as he was cleaning his nets after an unsuccessful night of fishing and compels Peter to go back out to the sea while he teaches and then says to Peter in verse 4 of chapter 5, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Sounds familiar. Peter and John, you can tell that they're, they're listening, but they're not sure what to make of it. They cannot recognize who the person is on the shore. But they wonder. This new scene echoes the, the first one, the one in Luke 5. Both of these scenes are, are calls to the discipleship, to the mission of the church. Why then does we have a second one? Why does Jesus go through this a second time? It is, it is because of this. Peter doesn't know what to do with himself. This is after Peter's dark night. It's after his fear that it's all over. Jesus comes to them at the Sea of Galilee and calls them a second time out of their boats to communicate he still has plans for his disciples. He still has ministry work for them to do. And he shows this by giving them yet again a tremendous catch. The first time the nets were nearly breaking, this time the, 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 the net was just full. They could hardly manage it. We were told a, an interesting detail that there were 153 fish that were caught in the net. Why this number 153? It's amusing in the commentaries to read paragraph after paragraph after paragraph about the, the different suggestions for what the number 153 must mean. It's clear by the fact that commentators go all sorts of directions that there probably is no underlying significance to 153. I think the, the best answer for why we know the number 153 is this. John was a fisherman. Fishermen like to tell their fishing stories. And they wanted to tell them 153. Every time I've been out with a, a person fishing or a person fishing comes back, they tell me how many they caught. They knew 153 because they wanted to know and tell people, we have 153. That number is just an expression of their joy in the catch. What is the catch? What is the catch? The catch here is the, is the same lesson as the catch in Luke 5. It is a picture of the disciples' role to be fishers of men. 
It is to remind them that their job is to catch others by sharing the gospel to the world. They are not in the business of fish that swim anymore. They are in the business of catching men who have been lost. And so what does this miraculous catch teach us about discipleship? Well, notice it only comes after the Lord's command. The disciples' success in gathering the lost relies upon the power of the word of God to accomplish it. It wasn't until Jesus said, put your nets on the right side, that they had any success at all. It was the word of God that they obeyed. It was the word of God that accompanied them that brought in the catch. Beloved, apart from the word, the disciples learn they can do nothing. But with the word, they will bear much fruit. It's because it's the word that it's always his catch. And it's the power of the word that gives the disciples confidence to go out and preach the gospel and share the gospel. Because as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, it is the word of God that is the power of God. And so as we seek to reach the lost, as we seek to gather in those that the Lord is calling, the disciple goes out with the word of God, confident that that is the power, the only power that they will need to effectively witness and bring in the lost. God's word is the power to save. It is the power that brings in the catch. Peter learned this lesson, and he passes it on in his first epistle, chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. What does he tell us about the word of God? He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Beloved, it is the word of God that is the power of God to save. Now let me ask you directly. Have you responded to the word of God preached? Have you heard Jesus Christ proclaimed from the scriptures? And have you heard the Holy Spirit saying, Amen, Amen in your heart? This is salvation. Respond to the word of God. Put your trust in its truth and in its message that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. And the power of God that raised Jesus is in that word 
and will bring you into salvation. Beloved, are you relying on the word of God in your ministry as you seek to to call people to know Jesus? Do you take them to the scriptures? Do you make the power of God evident by bringing out the word of God in your conversations? The disciple must trust, must depend, and must work through the power of God, which is the word of God. I love this passage. Look what happens when Peter realizes it's the Lord. He jumps out of the boat and he swims. He swims towards Jesus. Why? Because he's full of joy. His Lord gives him joy. I mean, I think Peter is is experiencing the meaning of these words that Jesus gave them in John 16. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Just as a newborn baby replaces the anguish of the labor with joy, so the disciple, when he sees his Lord, after going through the dark night of his denials, finds his anguish and his bitterness overwhelmed with joy. Beloved, the disciple shows us that the gospel turns sorrow and grief into joy. This is what the love of Jesus does. Peter describes it in in 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And what? Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The risen Lord, when it comes to you, the evidence that you have experienced that, Peter says, is to jump out of the boat in joy. Is to have what he calls joy that is inexpressible. Have you experienced that joy of knowing Jesus, the forgiver of your sins? But more, Jesus promised that his disciples will hear his voice. And Peter hears his shepherd's voice. That is why he is coming. John says it is the Lord, and Peter says yes. He jumps out of the boat. He hears his shepherd's voice, and he comes. Shepherding is the emphasis of the last few verses in this section. The scene itself reminds us of the 23rd Psalm. We're here at the Sea of Galilee. Smooth, beautiful blue waters. Think of this scene next to these words. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Here we are next to still waters with the good shepherd. Let us look at verses 9 through 14. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of his disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What a picture. Jesus is cooking breakfast for his tired disciples beside still waters. By these acts, they know they are with Jesus. The meal was a revelation of the risen Lord. Even though for whatever reason they could not recognize his face, that seems to be a feature of several resurrection appearances, they knew him by his presence. They knew him by what he did. They saw in his actions the same actions they saw when he fed the 5,000. They saw in his humble service of feeding them a meal the same humility they saw in the foot washing. They saw in his separating the bread and passing it out, him at the Last Supper. Jesus revealed himself as much by his character as by his, by his face. You see, the true disciple knows Jesus because they have just gotten to know him so well that they can hear and see and recognize his presence. In the midst of this breakfast, Jesus looks to Peter. And let's look at verse 15 again. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? When Jesus asks this question, he is wanting Peter to consider that he loves them, him as much as anyone possibly can. And the background of this question is the recognition that he who is forgiven much loves much. And so Peter, who is going to be and has been forgiven much, the denial of Jesus three times, Jesus is saying, do you love me much? We have seen his answers. But we also need to look and listen to what Jesus instructs Peter to do after each of these responses. Jesus says to him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is saying to Peter, I want you to show your love for me. By shepherding my flock. It's Jesus' flock 
And Jesus is entrusting Peter now to take care of it. He says, feed and and, and shepherd my precious little lambs. There is no more evidence that Peter has been restored than that Peter has been entrusted with such a noble task and great responsibility. What does this teach us as disciples? Notice that the work of shepherding, the work of caring for the flock, comes out of the love that we have for Christ. Do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. This is the essence. This is the essential lesson of discipleship. We care for one another out of our love for Jesus. As Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Just as disciples are to be busy bringing in Jesus' catch, they also must be at work loving his flock. Jesus is about to depart, but he doesn't leave his disciple unprepared. So also with us. As we look through these lessons from John 21, the love of Jesus, the call to to the mission of Jesus of reaching the lost by the word of God and the caring for the flock through the love of Christ, we recognize that we have everything that we need to bring in the lost and to care for the church. The disciple has the power of Christ's word and the steadfastness of his love. Beloved, do you know his love? Do you know his word? Live in it, love it, share it, and care for his sheep. Amen. And now we are going to uh, pray the Lord's Prayer again, because I went ahead and prayed it once already, but it's the disciples' prayer. So let us conclude together by praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.